Well, good morning. It is good to see these, these bags up here. That means people are starting to participate. And I want to encourage you to sack this pulpit. Let's fill this thing up. Uh, you can talk to, to Jessica and, and learn more about, uh, Jessica Hazel, and learn more about what, what exactly we're doing here. There's a lot of people involved in it. And I think that it'd be a, a wonderful thing that, uh, that we could do to help out uh, during uh, the Thanksgiving time. And so let's keep uh, contributing, keep being generous, keep working towards it, and let's get this thing full. We've been talking about different callings on Sunday morning. We've been kind of walking through the story of the Bible, uh, looking at different people who were called in some really difficult ways, uh, some people who were called in extraordinary ways, some people who were called in, I guess what you could call some mundane ways. You know, some people have really extravagant call scenes that are described in the story uh, of the Bible, and then some of them it's like there's not even a divine word spoken. They just see an opportunity and they know that as a servant of God, they must respond to it. Sometimes the call happens like Ezekiel where you're at the river Kibar and you see uh, the incredible visions uh, and the, 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 uh, the cherubim and the, the living creatures and the wheels and the eyes and the lightning and the clouds and, and the one seated on the throne and all of that. And then sometimes you're just bringing food to your brothers at a battlefield and you hear the enemy chanting against God and you think, someone really needs to do something. I guess that person's me. Uh, sometimes the call is obvious. Sometimes it's not so much. But I think as we, as we go throughout our lives, if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to be shaped by, uh, by God and by his Holy Spirit, and if we're willing to go where God uh, is directing us in our lives through obedience, we'll see around us opportunities and needs and perhaps it would be beneficial to interpret those needs around us as callings around us. And when the church is, is calling upon you, hear that as a calling. And when you see someone who uh, you could help, see that as a calling. And when they're asking for Bible teachers, maybe that's a calling. And when they're asking for bags to sack the pulpit, maybe that's a, a calling. Not all callings are easy, though. And not all callings are simple. Um, we're going to talk about someone here this morning who we're actually going to do this one a little different. We're not really going to look at a call story. There's not, there's not much of a call story that's given. We're actually going to look at the end of his ministry, I guess you could say. And it's going to be from the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, two different books in your Bible, uh, were originally one book. Uh, they began to be separated over time uh, so that we read them as two books, but it's very helpful to read them together. Uh, there is like a cyclical nature in the way that the story is told that goes through Ezra, the first part, second part, and then Nehemiah. And the themes throughout the, these two books, they match because they were one book. And so it is helpful to read them together. Um, and as you do so, you'll see some really interesting things. There's a ton of really good, awesome stuff that they accomplish in these books. But there's also a sense, like every time you read something great that has been done, there's a sense of, um, of it being incomplete, imperfect, unsatisfactory. Uh, it's like they finish and you think things are going to go great, but then it kind of leaves you with this anticlimactic feeling that it's just not really what, it's not as wonderful as you thought it was going to be. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Ezra and Nehemiah and what these books are all about. We last week talked about Daniel. Daniel is interesting because he, the story of Daniel that we have from the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. 
Uh, Babylon is not the promised land. Babylon is uh, the, the world ruler at the time. And Babylon had come into Jerusalem, come into the promised land, and destroyed it. And they left the temple in ruins. They put an end to the Davidic monarchy. And they took as captives a lot of the Israelites. In their first the deportation from Israel to Babylon, they took a lot of the youths who were good-looking, who were smart, who had potential, and they trained them up in the, in the, the Babylonian culture. Daniel was one of those guys. So Daniel is living as an exile. His homeland is left in ruins. And the question on everyone's mind is, has God forgotten about his people? Like, has God abandoned us? Has God done with us? Did God say, okay, that's the final straw. You've sinned one too many times, and I'm done with you forever. And there are people who, who are struggling with, how do we live now without our God? Uh, how do we live now? The God who called Abraham, the God who we, and on Sunday mornings, we've been studying his interactions with his people throughout this long, winding story. Now, they're in a foreign land. And where is God? The key God there is, is you know, the Babylonian God Marduk. Like, where, where is Yahweh? Where is our God? And you have prophets like Jeremiah who are, who are living during this time who are letting them know it's not going to be a quick and easy punishment, but it will end. God will renew his covenant with his people. He will make them a new heart. God will bring you back. He even gives the time period of 70 years. 70 years and you'll be able to return back home. Well, what happens after 70 years of Babylonian captivity? What happens when they are able to return back home? Well, it's in that context of returning home that Ezra and Nehemiah is written. So we're getting actually really close to the end of the story of, of our Old Testament. And it's going to end with captivity's over. Babylon's not even in charge anymore. The Persians have taken over. And the Persians are going to allow Israel to go back home. And Israel has to go back home. And they have a lot to do when they get there. Their home is a mess. It's lying in ruins. It's, it's been completely destroyed by one of the most powerful nations ever to arise. And so what are they going to do? They're going to have to rebuild it. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the books, uh, the minor prophet books of Haggai and Zechariah, these are all written about the same timeline, the same, the same uh, series of events about returning home, rebuilding the temple, restoring life in Israel, getting back on track after everything was just completely destroyed. Like everything in your life has been turned upside down. These people returning home have never even seen, for the most part, uh, have never even seen Israel before. You have some of the, the, the much more older folk who have, but, uh, but for the most part, like these people, they're, they're going, Israel is itself a foreign land to them. They were raised in Babylon. In fact, the leader of the children of Israel in the first few chapters of Ezra, his name is Zerubbabel. Babel, Babel, Babylon. His name means seed of Babylon or sown in Babylon, like Zeru Babel. <laughs> like that's a reminder. Every time they even say his name, every time he thinks about himself, of the failures of Israel and what they're trying to come out of. And so this is the setting in which these books take place. They begin by remembering Jeremiah said 70 years and this is going to be over. They talk about the Persian king who allowed them to return home. And then they get there, and it's time to start building. So the first six chapters of the book of Ezra is largely about rebuilding the temple. They lay the foundations in chapter 3. Uh, they, they offer sacrifice again. They worship again. They praise again. But then uh, it seems like they kind of uh, 
start to focus on other things, uh, and, uh, and they're not working on the temple quite as much. You, the book of Haggai gives a lot of information about that. They start working on their own houses, which makes sense. You need a place to live. They start working on their own fields, which makes sense. You need some food to eat. Like, they start focusing on all of their own stuff, and they start neglecting God's stuff. They start focusing on their own houses, and they neglect God's house. So Haggai and Zechariah, these are prophets who come along and start encouraging people, no, start rebuilding the temple. They are actually mentioned, by the way, in the book of Ezra, chapter 5 and verse 1, says, uh, when the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them supporting them. And so one of the common themes of prophets in Israel is when they say stuff, it's really important and it comes from God and no one listens. It's like so often the prophets have failed messages. What's really cool about Haggai and Zechariah is uh, it works. They start prophesying, hey, start rebuilding the temple. And this is one of the few successful messages because the people do it. In uh, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, uh, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so they actually finished the temple, which is awesome. Like that, that's a wonderful thing to have been able to do. It's in chapter 7 that Ezra appears. So Zerubbabel is like the leader in the first six chapters, and they rebuild the temple. Chapter 7 through 10 of Ezra, that's when Ezra enters, and Ezra is going to try to not necessarily rebuild the temple, but rebuild the community. He's a priest, he's a scribe, and he's an absolute scholar. Uh, when you get to Nehemiah, he appears there, and he reads the law to all the people, and he interprets it for them and translates it so that they can understand the words and the sense of the words. He's a wonderful teacher of the law. But he also really struggles with the ideal of the law and the reality of the lives of the people, because those two things often don't match. By the way, uh, that's not just a problem that he had way back then. I think anytime you read the Sermon on the Mountain, look around. <laughs> read the Sermon on the Mountain, look inward. And what you'll see is the ideal of the law and the reality all around us and inside of us, they don't always match up well. And Ezra struggles with what to do with that. Um, the end of the book of Ezra ends with a, with a difficult passage where they realize the people of Israel have married uh, foreigners, and there's some, some, you know, if you're marrying a foreigner, you're usually marrying into a foreign gods and foreign religions, and, and trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to solve this problem? So Ezra confesses it before God, and then uh, someone comes up to him and says, maybe we should just send all the foreigners away, like even the wives and the children. And there's some discussion about this, and some people are for it, and some people were told are against it, and then they, they do it, and we're given a list of people who do that, and that's how the book ends. And at the end of the book, we're not really told, like, and God was thrilled that they did that. I mean, the, the law of Moses doesn't actually say to do that uh, in that situation. And so they're, they're, here's what you have, and this is what you have all the way through. You have the desire to do the right thing and some confusion 
about how exactly it needs to be done, and there's just always uncertainty on like every page. Did we do the right thing or did we not do the right thing? And, and so as you read through the books, you'll see them accomplish a lot. You'll see Zerubbabel build the temple. You'll see Ezra start teaching the law and the people start trying to live out the law uh, and trying to, to reform and to restore life. But then you'll also, see, uh, you'll also see Nehemiah. When you get to the book of Nehemiah, what he's gonna build is the wall around Jerusalem to keep them safe from enemies. Um, but even the idea of rebuilding that wall is a reminder that things aren't gonna be easy. You don't need a wall when there's peace. And so the wall itself is a reminder of how difficult things are going to be. And as they're building the wall, there's constant difficulty. There's threat of enemies. There's all of this conflict that he has to overcome. There are people like, like there's a guy named Tobiah who is mocking, ridiculing, threatening, sending letters to try to stop the process of rebuilding the wall. But eventually they finish the wall. Ezra reads the law to the people, and, and uh, the people reaffirm their covenant with God. Some great things happen. They end up dedicating the temple to God. They end up dedicating the wall to God. They restore Passover, which is incredible. They restore the, t- uh, the Feast of, of Booths. It's like they're starting, they're starting to relive as faithful Israelites again, and that's the end of chapter 12 of Nehemiah. And then there's one chapter left. And you would love it if this chapter ends with Nehemiah, the temple's built, the law has been read, covenant has been entered, the feasts have been celebrated, the wall has been built, and the temple sacrifices, like the priesthood has returned. And you would love for him to walk around and see faithful Israelites everywhere living out the word of God and think we did it. We finally restored what God had called us to be. We're living out Torah the way that Moses wrote it. We are being faithful and obedient to God. But when you read chapter 13, just like every step of the way, it's going to end with an unsatisfying, anticlimactic, kind of dreary conclusion. You think, I was hoping it would be better than that. Uh, But it kind of ends on a a downer. Because it ends with Nehemiah walking through and looking at the people and looking at the city. And what he sees virtually every step of the way is, man, I have built a wall to keep us safe from the outside, but I guess I haven't changed anything on the inside because we're still neglecting God and we're still failing to to be what he has called us to be. If you look at chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah, the first three verses of it, he goes through and he realizes that uh, there are foreigners all in the land. Okay, so... um, Nothing wrong with foreigners. In this book, you have to kind of think about what Nehemiah is going through uh, when, he, when he does this. What you'll see is Ezra and Nehemiah very much are trying to get all foreign influences and pagan influences outside of Judah. Why? Well, one big reason is they were just in Babylonian captivity. Like they just were in a foreign land completely and utterly dominated by foreigners. And they're wanting to get back some semblance of being the people of God again. And as long as they're still dominated by Persians or Babylon, or they still have those influences or the influences of the Moabites or the Ammonites and their gods, it's never going to feel like home again. And so they're trying to purge themselves of that. Uh, I don't know that they always do that in the right way. 
ways. And what's interesting is when Jesus comes along, um, that's a mindset he very strongly has to fight against, this, this antagonism towards any Gentile or outsider. That's something that Paul has to rebuke Peter because Peter doesn't want to eat with like Gentiles. What you see is from this point, there's this mindset of trying to be so separate from foreigners that Israel starts to kind of forget what her purpose is, which is to be a blessing to the nations. Like that's what Abraham was called to be, is that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet Israel starts to kind of hate the, the other nations. Uh, and so the first thing he does in chapters 13, 1 through 3, is he sees all of the foreigners, he sees Moabites, and he's like, I've read the law. I know what the Moabites did to us when we were leaving Egypt, when we were wandering through the wilderness. They hired Balaam to prophesy curses on us, and then God made him speak blessing, but, but they were totally against us, and so let's kick all of them out of the land. So chapter 13 and verse 3 says, when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. All right. Then the next thing that happens, he keeps walking a little bit further, uh, or, or I guess the, the verse four says prior to this, and there's a couple of ways you could read that. That might mean like, um, in even more important than this, like before this in importance. Uh, but anyway, in verse four, he says, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, being related to Tobiah, now, if you've only read chapter 13, you don't know who Tobiah is. Tobiah, I mentioned him briefly earlier. He is someone who, the entire building of the wall process, he was a problem. He kept trying to stop it. He was ridiculing it. He has popped up over and over and over again in the first six chapters of this book. And every time he was unhelpful and antagonistic to the actual building process. Well, it turns out that he's related to a priest named Eliashib. And you know what the priest has done? <laughs> They've rebuilt the temple. And in the temple, there are these, these storehouses where you put like all the stuff you're going to need for sacrifices. You put the grains and you put, there, there's a list of things uh, mentioned there in verse five, uh, grain offerings, frankincense, utensils and tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers um, and the contributions for the priests. All of that stuff is supposed to be put in those storehouses. You know what this priest did for his buddy Tobiah, who has been nothing but a problem to Nehemiah? emptied out the storehouse, and he says, hey, Tobiah, you can use this to conduct your business, and you can use this for your own personal quarters. And so Nehemiah starts looking at the temple, and it's like, wait a minute, we're using the temple to house someone who's completely against the work that we're trying to do here. And so uh, in, in chapter 13, in verse 8, it says, it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room, and I gave the order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God and the grain and the frankincense. All right, so he gets Tobiah out, and he says, all right, got to fix that. So get the foreigners out of the land, get Tobiah out of the temple, and let's return that to God. Then he keeps walking a little bit further, and in uh, verse 10, he says, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. Here's what that means. Uh, you're supposed to have a temple there, and you're supposed to have Levites who, like, serve in the temple, and there's Levitical singers who lead in the worship, and they help with the sacrifices, they help out the priests and all of that. None of them are at the temple anymore. They all went home to their own houses. And he's saying, why are they doing that? Apparently the people stopped tithing. 
And so the, the Levites couldn't afford to serve the temple anymore. So they have to go to their own houses and they have to start working on the lands there. And so Nehemiah sees this and thinks, oh, we have to solve this problem now. And so he tries to get all of that restored. Uh, verse 12, all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And then he, uh, he ends in verse 14, this problem, after trying to get that restored, he says a prayer. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of God in its service. I think, I think he's starting to think, okay, there's a lot of problems here, and they keep arising. God, please remember the good that I'm doing right now. He goes a little bit further in verse 15, and he sees that Sabbath is being completely ignored and rejected by the people. They are buying and selling. They're opening up their places in the market. They're, they're, they're bringing their goods to the city wall to bring it into the city to sell on Sabbath. And he sees all of this happening. And again, he's thinking, they don't even care about Sabbath, these people. It's like, we rebuilt the temple. We read the law. We had Passover. We built the wall. Like, we've, we've done all of these things. And yet they're completely in their lives ignoring what God has called them to be. Again, we, we saved ourselves from the outside with the wall, but we're destroying ourselves inside the wall. There hasn't been a change of heart. And so people are putting their wealth and their business above Sabbath observance and above God. And so then he keeps trying to, to solve this. He, he threatens violence on anyone who tries to come to the, temp, uh, to the city and work on the Sabbath. And then uh, verse 22, this, this problem ends. Uh, by him saying, and I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. So it's like he's going to have some Levites there to make sure people don't come in here and work on the Sabbath. And then he says, for this also, he ends with a prayer. Remember me, O my God, and have compassion on uh, me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. So again, more problems. He's recognizing that he's not changed these people, even though he built a wall, and he again asks God to remember him for the good, at least that he's trying to do. And then another problem in verse 23, this is the one that it ends on. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women of uh, Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and their children don't even know the language of the Israelites anymore, and, and he's just... He's at his wit's end, and he's not getting the people to change. And do you want to see what a frustrated leader looks like when he's been called to this task, and he thinks he's accomplished it, but then he looks around and he sees that no one actually cares or is helping or is doing anything? Verse 25, this is like how we see Nehemiah's leadership ending as the story comes to a conclusion. He says, so I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck them, and I pulled their hair, and I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters nor sons, uh, nor take daughters uh, for your sons or yourselves. Didn't Solomon, and it starts telling about Solomon, like how Solomon destroyed his reign by marrying all the foreign women, and, and what he's saying is basically, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to curse you, and I'm going to hit you, and I'm going to pull your hair, and I'm just going to scream, stop doing this. And then uh, verse 31, the final verse, uh, notice the final words of it. Remember me, O my God, for good. It's a third prayer for God to remember, at least he's trying to do good. Just re There's a lot of bad, but remember the good. And Nehemiah ends with that. It ends with the leader frustrated, pulling hair and punching people, screaming at them to stop sinning, and begging God to remember that he's trying to do good. Remember the good. Um, 
you read it and it's just not a great conclusion. You know, it's, it's like you would have loved to have seen righteousness flowing throughout the land, but you don't see that. You see a frustrated leader who can't change the people on his own. And by the way, a lot of people use Ezra and Nehemiah for like leadership books. Um, that's, that's fine. But if you do so, recognize that you are going to be studying a leader who ends up frustrated that it's not working the way he wants it to work. But as you read through these books and you, you see the way it concludes, I mean, this is like historically speaking, some of the last stuff you read before you get to the New Testament. There's like a couple hundred years of no books there uh, in, in our Bibles. But like right here, this is kind of what you're ending on. Uh, you're ending on a people who have returned to the land and they've gone through the actions of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall and God has been there with them and helped them through it. And yet the heart of the people still isn't wholly given to God. And it's like, man, I've been reading the Old Testament for a long time. I started in Genesis, and I get here, and it's like, I don't want the story to end like that. I wanted there to be, like, righteousness flowing among the people. I wanted there to be something better than this. Like, what about being a blessing to all the nations of the earth? That was a huge promise in Genesis 12. Where's the end of that? Where does that happen? Does that happen? It's like the Old Testament's ending with an unrealized hope of something better, and it's leaving you wanting something more. And I think that might be on purpose. Uh, I think that might be intentional, that it's leaving you wanting something more. Because as we bring this uh, book of Nehemiah to a close, and as we start to bring our lesson to a close, I think there are a couple of things that are very helpful to remember. Um, one of them, just looking at Zerubbabel, looking at Ezra, looking at Nehemiah, in each of them you see imperfect leadership in people who are in need of encouragement, in need of of divine help, guidance, wisdom. And, uh, and, and, and you actually see that when you read through Haggai and Zechariah, you see intentional efforts to encourage some of these leaders who are downtrodden. Um, but remember, if you are leading anything, if you are uh, serving in the church, you will often be an imperfect leader and you will often not be able to get others exactly where you want them to be. And that can be frustrating. But even as Nehemiah is coming to a conclusion, he's not in anger giving up on what God has called him to do, and he's not giving up on God. He's begging God to remember, even through the frustration, remember the good. Uh, and I think sometimes that's something that we can do that would be beneficial is remember the good. Uh, there are, there, I, I know of, of ministries and things that have started where good was done, but they didn't catch wildfire. And they, they didn't, uh, you know, change the whole world. And people walked away discouraged. And sometimes it's helpful, remember the good. There is good that happened because of that that would not have happened otherwise. You remember that, and I think God will too. Um, imperfect leadership, it's, it's a fact of life. Um, another fact of life, and this is another point that I think Nehemiah, that we end with, is you see people living an imperfect obedience. Um, I think both of those words are important, imperfect and obedience. We are called to be obedient. We are supposed to live lives of obedience. That is a, a central part of being a follower of Jesus is actually obeying Jesus. If you're not going to obey Jesus, you better not call him Lord, because Lord implies obedience. You know, obeying matters. 
But anytime we look at what Jesus said, and I look at myself, or I look at the the church community, or I look at the, the people of God throughout the world, you can always find imperfection. Sometimes more than imperfection. You can find failure in a lot of ways uh, to, to adequately obey what Jesus has called us to be and to look like it. And I know people who get very discouraged looking at their, the, the church around them, looking at, at other Christians, and, and seeing it should be more than this. It should be better than this. It should be like, we're called to be the light of the world. We should look like more than what we are. And I can't help but think maybe Nehemiah was feeling like that, looking around thinking, we should be more than this. We should be better than this. But the reality is, while we're in this life, we often, you'll often never be fully satisfied. Uh, You're never going to say, ah, the perfect community of God, where everyone is as holy and wonderful as I am. One of the reasons why is because even when you look at yourself, don't look collectively always, but look sometimes at yourself and recognize I'm often that same way. It's like, I don't offer a perfect obedience. I offer a, I'm a flawed follower. I'm, I'm trending in this direction, I hope, but I often find myself in potholes and often the the gutter to the side of the road. It's like, how do I, how do I live the life that God has called me to be? And I think a key way to do that, whether you're with yourself individually or thinking about the community as a whole, is to remember to call upon God to remember us for good, to call upon God, verse 22, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. You know, uh, one thing that you have to remember in Jesus's model prayer in Matthew 6, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses. It's like he starts by saying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wonderful. But then he moves almost immediately into forgive us when we don't actually do that. That's always going to be the balance. (laughs) That's always going to be the line we walk. We want God's kingdom and God's reign at the same time. Forgiveness is a constant part of that. And then finally, uh, a, a point that I think we need to remember as Nehemiah comes to a conclusion this is like the it, you know, for, for the story of the Israelites. They've gone into exile, they've returned home, and you're left wanting more. You're left longing for something better than this conclusion, and I think you'll get it. Um, the story actually doesn't end here. This is leaving you longing for something else to come that will realize fully what God has been calling his people to be and someone will come, and someone will show that perfect obedience. Someone will come, and will show what it means for God to truly be king. Someone will come, and that exile that they have been suffering through and trying to come over, he'll lead them out of it once and for all, fully and truly. Someone will come, and he'll bring about that blessing to all of the nations that was promised to Abraham. Someone will come, and he'll put an end to the exile of Eden. And that's what we're longing for. If you read this book, and it seems anticlimactic at the end of it, remember that even at the end of this book, there's a word Messiah that the Jews are longing for, to see and to be realized. And next week, we'll look at that calling. And we'll look at that mission, and we'll see some of the things that we can learn about it. Um, But as you look at yourself, and as we bring the lesson to a close, 
we are all imperfect in our obedience and we could all use the help of one another in the community. One of the worst things you could do as a community is look at the imperfect obedience of someone else or another group and think, oh man, they're awful, and like cause divisions in it. Instead of unifying and recognizing we're all in this together, how can we help one another? And if you need the help of this community here this morning, please let it be known. You can come sit on the front row. You can go talk to one of our elders in the back. Uh, you can ask for prayers. Uh, we would love to help surround you, encourage, and help you in any way that we can. And if anyone wants to become a Christian this morning, we would love to help you with that. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life. Have uh, yeah, uh, make the decision to live for him from this point forward and have your sins washed away in baptism. We pray that you would let it be known while we stand and as we sing.